And this passage uh, compares those things too. Big kingdom prayer and little kingdom prayer. Or you could call it uh, the prayer of little kingdoms is anxiety. The prayer of the big kingdom is prayer. And so uh, these are the three things we're going to talk about from the passage. It's in your bulletin. The obstacles to prayer, encouragements to pray, and instructions in prayer. So why don't you stand up and we're going to read most of this passage. This is from Matthew 6. This is still Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking and he says to his disciples, So when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites or the actors. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've already received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is skipping ahead a few verses further down. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, about what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I'm going to skip ahead to verse 31. I left the rest of that in there for you to read on your own as we talk. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what are we going to wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the big kingdom, his kingdom, and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would make prayer attractive. Let it taste sweet into our mouths tonight. We pray that you would make it, just persuade us into it. We've heard enough talks and we've heard enough lectures about how we need to be more disciplined and manage our time better and be more dedicated. But Lord, uh, we've seen what that's, where that's left us is nowhere but guilty and still prayerless. So we need your grace. We need your hand. We need your power to lead us into prayer and out of anxiety. I pray that that would happen tonight. I pray that you would be kind to do that. And we uh, put our money where our mouth is, Lord, by praying to you before we talk about prayer, because we know we need your help. So hear us for your sake and ours. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. So let me ask you this question. Think about this in the next few minutes. What comes more naturally and effortlessly to you? Prayer or worry? Prayer or anxiety? What comes second nature to you? What's the native tongue or the native language of that internal dialogue that happens in your head pretty much every hour that you're awake? Prayer or worry? If you're like most of your buddies, the answer is worry. 
Worry is kind of the native language that all of us have like a linguistics PhD in. We know it inside and out because we speak it every day. It's what comes naturally to us. We, we fear things. We're anxious people. We're restless people. We're obsessive people. We have little things in our mind that we fixate on. We can't let go of them and they snowball and they get bigger and they get bigger. Because we don't feel very equipped to handle what life's throwing at us. In 1985, UCLA, uh, their Higher Education Research Institute, began asking college freshmen if, quote, you feel overwhelmed by all that you had to do during the previous year. In 1985, 18% of incoming freshmen said they did. Last year, in 2016, 41% said yes. A three- or four-fold increase. Over the last 10 years, the number of hospital admissions for suicidal teenagers has increased 100% in the last 10 years. It has doubled. There's a kid named Jake. His story was on the front, front cover of the uh, New York Times last week. I don't know if you saw it. The title was, um, Why Are Teenagers Today More Anxious Than Ever Before? And this is a little bit of uh, a snippet of Jake's story. The disintegration of Jake's life took him by surprise. It happened early in his junior year of high school while he was taking three AP classes, running on his school's cross-country team, and traveling to model UN conferences. It was a lot to handle. But Jake, the likable, hard-working, oldest sibling in a suburban family, was the kind of teenager who handled things. Though he wasn't prone to bragging, the fact was he'd never really failed at anything. Not coincidentally, failure was one of Jake's biggest fears. He worried about it privately. Maybe he couldn't keep up with his peers. Maybe he wouldn't succeed in life. The relentless drive to avoid such a fate seemed to come from deep inside of him, and he considered it a strength that drove him. Jake's parents knew he could be high-strung in middle school. They sent him to a therapist when he was too scared to sleep in his own room. But nothing prepared them for the day two years ago when Jake, then seemingly ran, or then 17 years old, seemingly ran 150 miles per hour into a brick wall. His mother, his mother described it. He refused to go to school and he curled up in the fetal position on the floor and he screamed, I just can't take it. You just don't understand. <clears throat> Jake was right. His parents didn't understand. Jake really didn't understand either. But he also wasn't good at verbalizing what he thought he knew. That going to school suddenly felt impossible. That people were undoubtedly judging him. That nothing he did felt good enough. All of a sudden, he said, I couldn't do anything. I was so afraid. His tall, lanky frame succumbed too. His stomach hurt. He had migraines. He said, you know how a normal person might have their stomach lurch if they walk into a classroom and there's a pot quiz? Well, basically, I started having that feeling all the time. That's one kid, 18 years old now, college freshman right now, and I know you can relate to him. The stats tell the story. Our conversations tell the story. My own life tells the story that we're anxious, scared people. All of us are. That's the internal dialogue in our head. We just don't feel like we can cut it. And we're fixated on our lack of resources to get through whatever we're facing right now. So it might be that project you've been putting off that now is getting closer, that you've got to finish before the end of the semester. It might be your grades. It might be trying to transfer in. It might be family stuff. 
It might be social stuff. We're at the point in the semester where you're through all of the politeness of, hey, where are you from? What's your major? And loneliness creeps in during this middle ground in the fall semester. You might feel like you know a lot of names, but you don't know anybody or nobody knows you. And you get anxious about that. Uh, you'll notice, as Daniel or, uh, Jan alluded to it, Daniel said it earlier, by this point in the semester, you start to notice people's anxiety gets the best of them. The problem is, we're like, it's like our house is on fire and we want run to the arsonist for refuge instead of the fire department. We start feeling like life's coming unglued, like we don't have what it takes to get through life or get through relationship. And so we run back, we double down, and we try all the harder to just get our work done or up our game or step up or try harder. And we end up more and more terrified and paralyzed. It snowballs. That's the dilemma here. And that's the tragic part about our anxiety. We run to the very thing that caused the problem in the first place without any idea that that's what's happening. That's why it gets worse and worse. That's how stories like Jake happens to all of us. I don't think it's accidental that right after Jesus' main time in his ministry where he teaches on prayer, he has one of the longest, most in-depth anatomies of anxiety. I don't think it's accidental that when Jesus thinks about prayer, Jesus' mind immediately goes to anxiety. I think that's strategic. I think it's purposeful. I think it's an either-or proposition. We can either have a life dominated by anxiety and worry, or we can have a life dominated and flavored by prayer. I think they're connected. I think anxiety is the cry of an orphan who has no father, who runs everything. Prayer is the cry of a child of God. Anxiety is kind of sec- the secularized version of prayer. There's a lot of talking in anxiety, right? That internal dialogue, the way we talk to ourselves, the way we predict the doom that's going to come upon us if this doesn't happen or if we don't get that. It's a prayer, but it's a prayer that bounces off the walls. It's a prayer that never leaves our skull. Does that make sense? Anxiety is godless prayer. It's directionless prayer. It's aimless prayer. It's resourceless prayer. And all it does is give you more of itself, more fear, more slavery, more exhaustion. Or, Jesus says, there's prayer to a father who knows what you need, who loves you, who provides for you, who reorients you. I think it's either or. Hosea 7, there's this um, place where God is kind of picking a bone with his people and he's saying... Um, You cry on your beds at night, but you don't cry out to me. It's an either-or thing. Either we are praying to ourselves by rehearsing our anxieties, our fears, our needs to ourselves, or we're crying out to God. We're doing something with our sense of need. Hosea says you're either crying on your bed or you're crying to God. That's the way it works. So as soon as Jesus starts talking about prayer, Jesus starts talking about anxiety. That's why these two passages are connected together. So what's the solution that he gives us? Because if you've grown up in the church or been around Christians very long, even if just a few months, you might have heard some people just try to guilt you into a better prayer life or here's some techniques or here's more self-discipline or you need to be more committed or you need more reminders on your phone to pop up and say, get up and pray. 
And haven't we tried all that stuff? And hasn't it never really worked unless temperamentally you're a super diligent person? It just leaves us feeling less, making prayer feel less and less accessible to us. More and more distant, more and more a thing for diligent people that I'm never going to be able to do. That's the vortex it puts us in. Jesus doesn't have any of that. So I want, I, want, I want you to hear this up front so you don't mishear what he's saying. Jesus is not going the route of the reason your prayer life sucks or the reason you're so anxious is because you're not praying enough. He doesn't go there. He goes straight to the root, straight to the depths of why we're anxious people but usually not very prayerful people, why we're fixated on our needs and not fixated on our provider. So this is a paradigm-busting passage. We're going to come at it a couple, three different ways really quickly, and these are a little bit tangled in each other, so if you're a note-taker, just beware of that. But the obstacle to prayer, the encouragements to it, the instructions for how to pray. First, the obstacles to it. The first thing Jesus talks about here, he has two little brackets before he shares with us what's known as the Lord's Prayer. And the first of these is uh, suspicion of God. Being suspicious of God or his character is a prayer killer. It's a prayer killer. It's an anxiety producer, an anxiety snowballer. If you find yourself suspicious of God's character, of what he's like, it kills prayer. I think more than business, more than distraction, more than being tired, more than anything else. It's an attitude deep in your bones of God really doesn't care. I guess it's a settled attitude. It's not this agonizing, does he care? It's, eh, he doesn't care, I'm just going to get it done myself. He's not going to do anything about this. This is just the way it is. Jesus says in Luke 11, he says, What father of yours, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a snake? Or if he asks you for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father... Give the Holy Spirit or give good things to those who ask Him. What He's saying there, He is uprooting, He's digging out of our hearts the reason we're so anxious, one of the reasons we're so prayerless, is because we are suspicious of God's character, that He's bad, that He doesn't care, that He'll give us bad things in the face of our real needs. That he'll give us a scorpion when you ask for dinner. That he'll, uh, when you ask to grow in grace, that he'll screw up all of your life. We believe he's evil. And it kills prayer and it increases anxiety. Look at this. This is a little bit more subtle. The next chunk in verse 7, eight and, uh, seven and 8. Look at the manipulation that goes on with how the Gentiles pray. So first he talks about the hypocrites or the actors. Then he talks about the Gentiles. And he says, and when you pray, don't, don't make them super long, elaborate, flowery prayers, thinking that because you're, you're really well-spoken, God's going to tune in and actually listen to you. For they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before, he ask, before you ask him. Why would someone feel the need to manipulate God or arm twist God into giving you what you need? Only if you believe he doesn't desire or delight in giving you what you need. If you have to trick him into giving you what you need. Right? 
That's the only reason you would try to manipulate him with these flowery long prayers or these ritualistic things like say the rosary or say the Hail Mary. You're paying God. You're trying to manipulate a fundamentally evil, bad, stingy God to be good and to play nice with you. That's what Jesus is uprooting out of our hearts. Suspicion of God and his character is the reason we're so anxious, the reason we're often so prayerless. And Jesus is kind enough to x-ray our hearts and say, that's the reason, not our self-discipline, not that we sleep in too late, not that we're not diligent enough. Living for self is a prayer killer too. Living for these little kingdoms that we all chase is a prayer killer. Small kingdom prayers, selfish prayers are prayer killers. Here's one of the reasons why. There's a passage in James 4. Some of the freshmen in us looked at it a couple of weeks ago in our Bible study. But James says one of the reasons you don't get what you ask for, what you pray for, is because you would spend it on your own idolatrous desires. In other words, like we talked about last week and the week before and the week before, I'm not going to go re-explain it all now, but we've been talking week after week what small kingdom living is like. It's living where there's a population of one and I am the inhabitant. I'm the king. I'm the God. And I build my kingdom. And every now and then I invite God to come and kind of have a three-day vacation in my kingdom to fix the stuff that's broken and to make it more efficiently expand because there's some obstacles. This person's not playing ball. That situation's not the way I want it to be. Will you come and make my kingdom thrive and flourish? James says, no, God. That's an invitation he will not take us up on. He will not come and bankroll our tiny little kingdoms that are suffocating us and killing us and making us so anxious. Small kingdom living is where there's just you, which means all of the things that have to be done have to be done by you. All of the obstacles that are here have to be overcome by you. And that is an anxious life, right? That is a restless life. That's a life where you can't afford to sleep because it's all on you. That's Western culture, right? There's no time off because it's all on you. Small kingdom living it will kill our prayers. And this is where the very first chunk Jesus talks about comes in. He says, don't pray like the hypocrites. They stand in, all the, the, they stand in the spotlight, the synagogues, the street corners, so that they may be seen by their buddies. What are they after? Why are they praying? They're doing what I just said. They're praying for God to come. Hey, can you come down here for a minute and build my kingdom of looking awesome and really spiritual and pious and holy and religious to my friends? I want them to see me. I get a thrill from that. Can you please come and help that? Come and build my kingdom. Prayer in this, in this way for the hypocrites is just its a supporting role to their ego. Their ego is their God, the true and living God, and prayer to Him is just a supporting role to build this kingdom. Do you see that in the passage? Why Jesus is taking issue with these things? When God is small and we are big, anxiety is big and prayer is small. When I am big, God is small. And when God is small, anxiety is big because there's no one to tame the chaos. There's no one to put the genies back in the bottle. There's no one to say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. There's no one to say, peace, be still. There's no one who's in control. There's no one who's powerful. 
Little kingdom living will kill you. It will do to you what happened to Jake. It will crush you. It's the reason why of your generation, there's been a 100% increase since the last generation in hospital admissions for suicidal thoughts. Small kingdom living where there is no God and so it's all on me. Self-reliance flows right out of this. Self-reliance is a big kingdom prayer killer too. It's a big prayer killer, a big anxiety snowballer. A sense that you have to do life on your own or that you can do life on your own. That you have what it takes to kind of just push through and get it done. And this is where growing up in America doesn't help you at all. Because every voice around you, your parents, your professors, future employers, are all singing the same song here. Make the most of yourself. Make it count. Be all that you can be. You can do it. Paul Miller has a great book that you should read called The Praying Life. He says, if you're not praying, then you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. If we don't find ourselves praying, remember, we're still praying. There's prayer to God and there's prayer inside my cranium. There's directionless, aimless, pointless, powerless, futile prayer. It's called anxiety and worry and obsession. But if we find ourselves not praying to God, it's because we believe that all of my resources, my time, my talents, my awesomeness is enough to get me through life. And that's all that's bouncing around my head. Lastly, an impersonal relationship with God is a prayer killer. If God is an idea to you, If even that is making a generous statement, if it's not even like God, but if it's like Christianity for you or religion for you, no wonder we don't pray. We don't pray. How do you pray to an idea? How do you pray to a religion? How do you pray to an ideology? If God is not personal to you, if he's not a person, if he's not good, if you don't know him, if you don't see him as he's revealed himself as a person with character and a reputation and characteristics. No wonder we don't pray. He's impersonal. How do we know where to direct our prayers? The second thing Jesus gets into here is encouragements to pray. He's kind of hidden them in what he talks about. He's embedded them in there. He's not like first thing, second thing, third thing. But they're tucked away all the way in here. If suspicion of God and his character is a prayer killer then trust in God's character. Understanding who He is and what He's like will resurrect your prayers. It will deliver you from this captivity and this suffocation in your brain to a life of freedom and rest with a very big God. Trusting and seeing His gracious, generous character will liberate you from that. This is where Jesus says in the second chunk, the part I didn't read, He says, look and consider, look and consider, look at the birds, look at the weeds. And consider how the birds don't freak out every night where the worm's going to come from in the morning. And the lilies don't go to work every day, and yet they are more beautiful than the best robes and outfits humanity has created. And Jesus is doing the whole lesser to greater argument. If God cares so much for the dinky little weeds, how much will he care for his image bearers who look like him, who reflect him? If he cares for the stupid little birds that he loves, how much more will he care for you? You're not a bird. You're a human. 
That is the character of God. Jesus is drilling down into our suspicions and he's saying, God's not like you think he is. He gives worms to birds. He clothes weeds. You're supposed to look at his creation and we're supposed to be connecting the dots. If he cares for that, how much more will he care for me who he loves? Here's an application point about are we suspicious of God's character or are we confident in his character? Are we praying to get God to be good? Or are we praying because our hearts are convinced of his goodness? Are we praying to get him to play nice, manipulate him like the hypocrites and the Gentiles? Are your prayers trying to twist God's arm to be good and righteous and loving and generous? Or do you pray because he's good and righteous and loving and generous? You see the difference? One will kill your prayers. One will resurrect your prayers and sweeten them and make them a joy, not a burden. Are we praying to get God to act on your behalf? Or are you praying because you know he already acts on your behalf and delights to? Are you praying to wake him up? Wake up. I need help. Or are you praying because you know he's the one who's more awake than any of us? See the difference? One is suspicious of the God's character. One is confident in his character. Prayer sprouts and blooms out of here, and it's a joy. Prayer here is a duty. It's something that is always a few steps ahead of us, and it's a burden. And so, if suspicion of God is a prayer killer, confidence in him and his character, as Jesus corrects our vision here, is something that resurrects our prayer. If self-reliance is a prayer killer, poverty and neediness, a sense of your own poverty and your own neediness, will revive your prayers, will liberate you from this tiny claustrophobia to this wide-open world. A sense of your own poverty and your own neediness. Big kingdom prayer leaps from a place of lacking and weakness and poverty. And this is huge because we usually think that's an obstacle to prayer. I feel so needy. I feel so stuck. I feel so cold and indifferent and disinterested. I can't pray until I fix this. Then I'll go to God and pray. I'm mocking myself here. I do this every day. How much sense does that make? I have all these crushing needs that I can't fix, but I need to fix them before I go to him. Well, what am I going to ask him when I get there? Why not bring these obstacles to him? Why not bring your neediness to him and say, Father, my neediness is profound. It is deep. It is bigger than I ever thought. Help. Have mercy. Provide. Help me see what I need. Kids do this really, really well. I know because of our three kids. Eli and Addie and Noah don't have to think to be needy. They just live out of their neediness. There's no thought. With you and me, it's different. Today, I saw an email from a campus, an RUF campus ministry. He's been doing this about 10 years. I respect this guy. I look up to him. He does a phenomenal job. And he emailed a question to the 150 others of us on the listserv and asked a question about how to do something in ministry. And I was like, who is this guy? Ten years, he's killing it, and he's asking us a question. 
And it convicted me because I'm like, I've only been doing this five years and I don't ask questions because there's this inner sense of I should know by now. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be that guy who asks a question because then they're going to know I didn't know how to do that. It was amazing to me. Adults have such a hard time being needy. And you do too. Paul Miller says this in his book. Let's do a quick analysis on how little children ask. What do they ask for? Everything and anything. If they hear about Disneyland, they want to go here or there tomorrow. How often do children ask? Repeatedly, over and over again. They wear us out. Sometimes we just give in to shut them up. How do little children ask? Without guile. They just say what's on their minds. They have no awareness of what's appropriate or inappropriate. And Jesus says throughout the Gospels, if you want to learn how to pray, watch my kids. Or watch a little child who lives effortlessly out of their neediness and their lack. And it's an incessant all day long. I mean, it drives us crazy. We're very different than God. We're evil. He's not. All day long, Mama, Dada, I want this, I want that, I want this. It's the first thing I hear out of my kid's mouth. I want a snack. I want yogurt. I want a show. What if we prayed like that? The first thing out of your mouth, Father, I need this. Father, please do this. Father, make me this. be amazing, wouldn't it? Jesus wants to make you like a little kid again where you can remember how to reflexively cast your needs and your anxieties and your desires upon Him. Really quickly, and then we'll finish with our last point. If impersonal relationship with God is a prayer killer, then the lights come back on when you begin to see Him as a person. Listen to this. Prayer repersonalizes a world that anxiety depersonalizes. Prayer turns the lights back on. Prayer turns God back into a father and not some distant idea. Prayer is a dialogue, not a monologue. And Jesus is all over this. I started to underline as I was reading this. Did you count how many times the word your father appears in this passage? It's incessant. It's every other sentence. Don't you know that your father, your father, your father, your father, your father? Jesus isn't saying prayer helps or prayer is powerful. I hate that bumper sticker. Prayer is powerless. Prayer to this God is powerful. Asking your little kid brother to fix the ex- your, your, your grade on the exam is powerless. Asking the professor to fix it is powerful. Prayer is powerless. Prayer to the God of the Bible is of infinite power. And He is your Father. He is a person. He is not an idea. So in summary, prayer like this, the Lord's Prayer, is like it realigns your entire posture. Praying this prayer realigns you, brings you back to reality and does all the things we were talking about. It it turns God from an idea back to a person. It corrects your understanding of His character. There was a video someone put on uh, Josh's Facebook page a while back, and I'd seen this before. This is why I remember it. There's an Australian chiropractor who is incredible. You might have been the one who told me about him to begin with, but if you go to YouTube, Australian chiropractor, the guy will pop up. But this teenager came in, bent over like this, walking. He threw it on his back somehow, 
And this guy, for seven days straight, he does daily adjustments, daily alignments, where he's pushing and cracking and twisting and, and, and realigning. And this guy, at the end of seven days, it's almost like a miracle, walks out of his office standing just like this, when he couldn't even walk earlier in the week. Praying this prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is like that daily realignment that brings misaligned, anxious people like us, unbelieving, doubtful, suspicious people like us. It realigns you little by little so that you can walk again, so that you can believe again, live again, pray again. That's what Jesus is talking about in the passage. The last thing I want to do, and then I want to pray this together as our prayer, is go phrase by phrase and give you a one-sentence definition of what in the world is Jesus talking about. When Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, He's repersonalizing your God and He's saying, You have a Father. You're not an orphan. You're not in this alone. He's not indifferent to you. He hadn't lost sight of you. He sees you. He knows you. He's yours. He's ours. When he says, hallowed be your name, he's saying, you're not God, and he is. Father, make your name big again to me. Make me small. Make me sane. Make me sober. Make me know how to live in your world again. Make your name hallowed. I am dust and you're God. When he says your kingdom come and your will be done on earth or in crucis or in your sorority house or in your class as it is in heaven, you're praying, make your agenda the agenda that I live for. Let your desires, your dreams, your mission become my dreams, my mission. Let your vision for the future become the vision that takes over this world and every little place that I'm in. When he says, give us this day our daily bread, he's saying, Father, help me live one day at a time. Help me to forget about tomorrow. Help me to focus on today and to bring to you my anxieties about what I lack. Until I get to my bed at the end of the day, what do I need from you? I need bread. I need sustenance. I need grace for that difficult roommate. I need wisdom for that mom or that dad that's so confusing. I need relief from pain. I need whatever. I need to grow in you. And I need it today. When he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, he's saying, keep a short account with your father. Don't let your guilt and your shame and your sin build up to the point that it's like you're like the, the, the Catholic kid in the movie who it's like, Father, how long has it been since you've confessed? Seven years. We have a lot to talk about. He's saying, keep a short account as soon as you feel that tinge of guilt or shame. Run to the Father and talk about it. You're free in Jesus. As we forgive others, we need His grace to forgive others that way too. To let other people have short accounts with you. That there's not this buildup and accumulation of what that girl did to you. And all the things she needs to pay for now. Father, forgive me my debts as I forgive those who have sinned against me. And lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Deliver us from evil. He's saying, he's prioritizing something that you should be praying for. I should be thinking about this every day. That I live in enemy territory. There is danger all around. This is not a safe place. So Father, protect me, guard me, shield me, deliver me. Give me escapes. Give me off-ramps 
in my sin pattern so that I can repent and stop in the moment. Lead me away from temptation. This is Jesus telling you what you should be concerned about, what you should care about, what you should find important. He's my Father. I'm not God, He is. Bring your kingdom, not my kingdom. Give me my daily bread. Forgive me my sins. Help me to forgive others. Lead me away from temptation. Deliver me from the devil, from evil, from sin that so easily entangles. This is the Lord's Prayer. Jesus gave it to you to reorient you and realign you. And praying this prayer can slowly crack your back, back into a place where you can actually live again, pray again, believe again, trust again. Let's pray this prayer together. Read it on the page here since we all have a little bit of a different way to pray. Join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.